Seamus, The Case of the Mason Jars, Episode 7, Throwing Down the Gauntlet, is based on the book by John MacDonald, A Bullet for Cinderella. Pratt was still wearing the brown suit. The knees showed traces of pale dried mud. The forehead, in the area where the thin hairline had started, was broken jelly, an ugly, sickening depression. No man could have lived more than a moment with a wound like that. I realized the buzzard woman was calling to me in her thin voice. What? I said, are you staying another day? Yes, yes, I'm staying another day. She went into another room. She was working her way toward mine. I hurried back in. I put one bag in the closet, opened the other one, put my toilet articles back in the bathroom, and slammed the door and went out. The dog was standing by the car again, whining. I got behind the wheel. The seat was pulled back. Didn't drive myself home last night. I put the key in the ignition and drove out of there. I drove away from town. I didn't want to be stopped by a traffic light where anybody could look down into the back of the car. I remembered an old tarp in the back. I pulled off onto the shoulder and got the tarp. I waited while traffic went by and then spread the tarp over Pratt. I couldn't help seeing his face. The slackness of death had ironed all expression out of it. I drove on aimlessly, then stopped again on the shoulder of the highway. I wanted to be able to think. My hungover brain felt frozen, numb, useless. It did no good to wonder when the body had been put there. I couldn't remember the places where I had been. I didn't have to wonder who put it there. Stucky. He most likely tracked me down at a bar, moved the body to my car, and drove me home. He wanted to divert suspicion from himself and get rid of me at the same time. From the look of the wound, Pratt's murder had been violent and unplanned, one tremendous skull-smashing blow. Of the people I knew in LeBrook, Stucky was the only one both quick and brutal enough to have killed a man like Pratt. Pratt looked tough and capable. Pratt knew the risk with this job. But damn, he was a fellow P.I. just working a case. Pratt must have been getting too close to something out in the cabin that Stucky didn't want found. I knew Stucky hadn't found the money yet or he wouldn't have risked killing Pratt and he wouldn't have risked putting the body in my car. Last night I had told myself there was no reason to stay in LeBrook. Stucky had made a mistake. I had a reason now. The immediate problem was to get rid of the body. It should be a place where there would be no witness, no one to remember having seen my car. I couldn't go to the police. I could hear the conversation in my head. I was here before. Remember me? A transient wannabe rider with a PI license? It so happens I have a body in my car. It got there somehow last night. Was I drunk? Brother, you can find a dozen witnesses to how drunk I was. I was a slobbering mess, almost the worst I've been in my life. The only time I was more drunk was when I was drunk for two weeks after after I let that bastard that killed Abby die in a gutter. There'd be no glimmer of understanding in the cold official eyes of Lieutenant Persaud. A state patrol car passed me going slowly. The trooper behind the wheel stared curiously at me as I sat there. She stopped and backed up. Maybe they were already looking for me. What's the trouble? Nothing. I was uh, overheating. I thought I'd let it cool off. Is it far to a gas station? mile or so. It'll cool off quicker if you open the hood. Will it? Thanks. And get it a little further off the road. She went on. I moved the car further off the road. I opened the hood. I wondered if she would be bothered by the way I had acted and come back and check my license and look the car over. I wondered if I should make a U-turn and get as far away from here as I could. But it made some sense to risk the outside chance of her coming back and stay right there until I could plan what to do with the body. 
The noon sun was warm, and there was a subtle, sour odor in the car that made me sick. A dark red tractor moved back and forth across a distant hillside. Drainage water bubbled in the ditch beside the shoulder. A truck went by at high speed, the blast of its passing shaking my car. The hangover was giving my mind a flavor of unreliability. I had to be careful here. Memory is shaky, and dreams become mixed with reality. I began to wonder if I had imagined the body. When there was no traffic, I looked into the back seat again. The tarp was there, the body was covered. It was not covered very well. I saw a thick ankle, a dark brown sock, a brown scuffed shoe cracked across the instep with laces tied in a double knot the way my mother used to tie my shoelaces when I was very small to keep them from coming untied. It made Pratt more believable as a person, as the person who had sat on the edge of a bed and tied those laces and then had gone out and become a body, and the laces would eventually be untied by someone else. Somebody with a professional coolness and an unthinking competence. I whirled around when I heard traffic coming. When the road was clear again, I pulled the tarp to cover the ankle and shoe. But it pulled clear of his head and I could not look at him. I had to stop thinking of Pratt as a person. He was a body now. I had to get rid of it somewhere. I had to get rid of it soon. The very nearness of the body kept me from thinking clearly. The lake. I could find it again but I could be seen there as readily as Irene saw Pratt. I could hunt for obscure roads at random and dump the body out when I came to what seemed like a good place. But the body was going to be found, and it was going to be identified, and it was going to be in the paper with the right name. And Irene was going to remember that odd question I had asked the man and remember his telltale response to that question. The minutes were ticking by, and I was getting nowhere. Stucky's trap was wide and deep and lined with sharp stakes. I wish I could put the body back on his doorstep. Give it right back to him. Let him sweat. At first glance, the idea seemed absurd. But the more I thought about it, the better it seemed. I would be seen driving into the yard. But of question, I could say I was going to see Stucky. And I would see Stucky. I would leave the body in the yard somewhere between the piles of stacked lumber. No, that would do no good. No man would be so stupid as to kill another man and leave the body at the place where he worked. Yet if some attempt was made to conceal the body, perhaps then they would assume it was a temporary hiding place until Stucky could think of another. On the other hand, would any man be so stupid as to kill another man and then drive the body to the police station in his car and claim he didn't do it? Maybe that was my best out. Maybe that was the best innocent reaction. My hands were icy cold and sweaty. They left wet marks where I touched the steering wheel. I was trying to think of every alternative, every possible plan of action. I could go back and check out and head south and try to leave the body where it would never be found, buy a shovel, dig a desert grave, could put the body in the seat beside me and run into something. My ideas were getting worse instead of better. The very presence of the body made thinking as laborious as trying to run through waist-deep water. I did not want to panic, but I knew I had to get rid of it as soon as possible, and I could not see myself going to Prasad for tender mercy. There had been a reason Pratt had been killed. Hiding the body would give me time to figure that out. I would have to assume it would be traced to me eventually. By the time they caught up with me, I'd have to know why he had been killed. Knowing why would mean proving who had killed him. I knew it was Stucky. Why did Stucky kill Pratt? I closed the hood and started the car and drove. I found a promising-looking road that turned left. It was potholed asphalt ravaged by winter, torn by tractor lugs. It climbed mild hills and dipped into forgotten valleys. It came out of a heavy wooded area, and ahead on the left, set well back from the road, was a small stone chimney where a house had been burned long ago. The weathered great barn had half collapsed. 
It looked like a great gray animal with a broken back, its hind legs dragging. The road was empty. I turned in where the farm road had once been. Small trees bent over under the front bumper, dragged along the underside of the car, and then half rose again behind me. I circled the foundation of the house and parked behind the barn near a wild tangle of berry bushes. I could not be seen from the road. I had to risk being seen from the distant hillsides. It seemed very quiet with the motor off. A crow went over, hoarse and derisive. I opened the rear door of the car and made myself grasp his heavy ankles. Rigor had begun to set in. It took all my strength to pull the bulky body free of the cramped space between the back seat and the back of the front seat. It came free suddenly, thudding to the ground. I released the ankles and staggered back. There had been something under the body. Friction had pulled it toward me. It rested on the car floor, half in, half out of the car. A short, bright length of galvanized pipe with a dark brown smear at one end. I left the body there and went to see where I could put it. There was a great splintered hole in the back of the barn. I stepped through the hole. The floor felt solid. Daylight came brightly through the holes in the roof. I went back to the body again. Getting it inside the barn was difficult, having to leverage the body to a sitting position and push it into the barn through the hole. I dragged him back into some darkness. There was some hay on the floor, musty and matted. I covered the body with it. I went out and got the piece of pipe using a dry leaf to pick it up. I dropped it into the hay that covered the body. I wondered about Pratt. From a look of the man as he talked to us up at the lake, I guessed that he had no idea it would end like this. He had looked tough and confident, and this body under the straw was a far cry from that confident man I had talked to. His story had ended. He would not sit up with a grimace, brush the straw from his eyes, and reach for either a blonde or a bottle. Leaving him there had about it the faint flavor of burial, as though solemn words should be said. The floor rug was spotted and stained in four places. I couldn't see any on the seat or in the inside of the doors. I took the floor rug out and rolled it up and put it beside me in the front seat. I sat and listened to the quietness, straining to hear any sound of a car motor laboring on the hills. I heard only the birds and the sound of wind. I drove back out and did not head the way I had come. A car seen going and returning was more likely to be remembered on a country road than a car that went on through. Soon, as I had hoped and expected, I came to a place where a lot of trash had been dumped. I put the rolled rug in with the bed springs and broken bikes and kicked some random trash over it. By the time I passed the motel headed toward the city, I was surprised to find that it was only a quarter after one. I ate at a small restaurant on Delaware Street. When I left, I met Trixie Everett on the sidewalk. She had an armful of bundles. Hello, Mr. James. Did you remember anything, Mrs. Everett? I don't know if this is any use to you, but I did remember one little thing. It was a skit the fourth grade did, and Floyd was in it. It was based on Peter Pan. I can't remember the girl who played the part of Tinkerbell. The teacher wrote the skit and changed things around. She called Tinkerbell Pixie. But... I remember how funny it sounded the way it was written with Floyd calling the girl Pixie. It probably doesn't mean anything. It might. Thanks. I'm glad I met you. I was wondering whether to call you about anything that sounded so stupid. How should I go about finding out who that girl was? I don't know. It was a long time ago. I don't don't know if anybody would remember. The fourth grade teacher was Miss Davis. I had her too, later. She was real nice. I think she wrote that skit they did. I don't know what happened to her. They might know at the school. It's Grover Cleveland Elementary School on Holly Street near the bridge. 
As I looked at her, I made a decision. I was going to get the evidence I needed on Stucky and find the damn money. I didn't want it anymore. I'd give it to Leon like Floyd wanted. Pratt deserved justice. Mary Horseman deserved closure. Floyd deserved redemption. I was going to make sure they got it. Thank you for listening to Seamus. If you liked this episode of Seamus, please leave a review and tell your friends. Seamus, The Case of the Mason Jars, Part 7, Throwing Down the Gauntlet, is based on the book A Bullet for Cinderella by John MacDonald. Hunter James was played by Tom Hinton. The hotel clerk was played by Susan Green. The police officer was played by Julie Scala. Trixie Evard was played by Rebecca Chase. I'm Leslie Woodrow. This episode of Seamus was written by Max Reese and directed by Tom Hinton. Seamus is a New Meadows media production. All rights reserved.